I want to rock right now. I'm Rob Bass, and I came to get down. I'm not internationally known, but I, I'm known to rock the microphone because I get stupid. I mean, outrageous. Don't stand next to me if you're contagious. It's always good to do something foolish as you begin, just, you know, because it can't get worse after me trying to rap. Let's pray for God's mercy. Dear God, please help. Amen. Uh, I'm a pastor, so thank you. Um, I'm talking. Uh, so I'm a pastor. They don't let just anyone do that job. So, you know, naturally I'm a guy that has a lot of deep thoughts. Spend a lot of time uh, thinking pretty existentially in my office. To quote St. Katie, this is how we do. Do, 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 do. It's Katy Perry for the rest of you. So yeah, I think deep thoughts. One question that's been bothering me recently, just weighing on me, is this. Does Jesus like donuts? I mean, I don't know the answer to it. But I ask that because it seems like everybody I know wants to make Jesus into some sort of law enforcement officer. <laughs> Get it? Cop joke. It's all right. A lot of my best friends are cops. Seriously, actually. Um, uh, people want to make him into Officer Jesus. Writing citations, maybe letting you off with a warning. Maybe he'll have to slap the cuffs on you. You see this attitude in churches all the time. They don't use the language of Officer Jesus. They use other words. Um, one thing you hear sometimes is, uh, you're grieving the Lord, which is the way you tell a grown-up what sometimes people tell children. You don't want to make the baby Jesus cry, do you? Right? You're grieving the Lord. Uh, another one that you hear a lot is um, somebody uh, uh, might say, about a certain behavior that's going, I don't know if that's really pleasing to the Lord. Uh, is it pleasing to the Lord? Apparently the big question uh, that Jesus is up there asking is, am I pleased today? Mm, you know, and it's funny if you think about it, take off your church ears and hear that phrase, is it pleasing to the Lord? Do you ever use language like that in normal life? Uh, you know, say you go to the concession stand and they say, do you want onions on your chili? Uh, not really pleasing to me. I think just hold off, but extra cheese. Uh, you get back from your vacation. How was the cruise to Cancun? Oh, it was great. It was pleasing unto me and my wife. Uh, we, are, we are pleased by buffets. We are pleased by uh, tequila, and we are pleased by white sandy beaches. No one talks like that, but with Jesus, it's all about whether he's pleased today or not. It's not pleasing to the Lord, or it is pleasing to the Lord, or whatnot. Um, you know, this is, I, I've been in situations where somebody will say, you know, I'm doing this thing. I don't know if I should do it. Well, I don't know. Is it pleasing to the Lord? Which just leaves, like the answer is no, right? Uh, there's so much guilt and shame in the way that was just said that you know the answer is no. Um, so people always talk about whether Jesus is pleased or not. Um, and I freely admit that Jesus can be displeased. Uh, there's lots of things that displease him. War, 
suffering, malnutrition, greed, um, the Real Housewives series. Um, anything that I'm actually not kidding about that. Uh, anything that exploits people displeases the Lord. But act, but you know, in our context, in your context, if you're a church person, and who are we kidding? I mean, you're all church people. You're here on a Saturday morning. Um, uh, it's used in such a way um, to direct accusation to you. It's all about your behavior. Um, the big question is, is Jesus pleased with you or not? And the result for all this is, like I said, we get this view of Jesus that's Officer Jesus. He's patrolling the beat. You know, we've had some reports in this area of some displeasing behavior. Someone's <laughs> called it in, and we're here to check on you. Uh, you know, um, your integrity, your moral purity, your language. Um, do you only say, oh, my gosh, um, or oh, my gah, is the one you hear a lot now, you know. Um, uh, we, you know, Officer Jesus is on the beat. He might write you a ticket for not pleasing and he might kick you out of the Jesus party. So Jesus is this cop. And the result, there's two kinds of ways this can go for people. It can be either you're scared and you hide, kind of duck uh, behind the bushes, uh, because you feel his watchful eye. And I don't know if you know anybody who grew up in a church where Officer Jesus was very much in control. Um, uh, there's so much anxiety that can carry with you for your whole life. If that was often, if that was your early childhood experience of Officer Jesus, that stays with you for a lot of your life. And you have Christians, it breaks my heart, just sort of always looking over their shoulder, you know, is the, is the other shoe about to drop? I love it. Anne Lamott says, God only has one shoe. Yet we live as if the other one's about to come down. Um, uh, there are folks also, the other way to respond is to see yourself as Officer Jesus's deputies. He has deputized you. We are Barney Fife for the Lord. <laughs> we are looking to find people that are out of line. Better watch out. Um, these people, can we just be honest, are generally not happy people. Uh, but they need something to do, and apparently it's policing other people on behalf of Officer Jesus. Um, so this is the thing, the two ways you can go, scared and hiding, or deputized uh, for Officer Jesus in, in a way that can be um, judgmental and bitter. Yay, Christianity! Right? The church has a problem. There's a lot of people that run away from church. They get hives, you know, when uh, around December first because they know they're going to have to make their annual trip with mom to church or something like that. Um, the church has a real problem because if this is the two options, people that are scared, hiding, kind of beaten into good behavior, and then people that are just uh, watching other people's behavior, uh, that's not too appealing. So um, in the Bible, we get a different picture of Jesus. He looks a little bit different. He's called the friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's called, uh, actually he gets accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. And people were always upset with him that he wasn't enforcing the law more. They wanted him to bring the hammer down on lots of people. John the Baptist was like, what gives Jesus? 
We thought the axe was lying at the root of the tree, and yet you're nice to all these deadbeats. What's going on? Jesus was always accused of being a scofflaw. It's a great word. It means someone who breaks the law. Um, last night, David Zoll and I jaywalked, and uh, there were some others of you who were crossing in the crosswalk, and I just, I just, I'm that free in the gospel, people. <laughs> scofflaws, I just, you know, any uh, SAT takers out there, you are welcome. Uh, scofflaw. Jesus always gets accused of being a scofflaw. So whenever you find uh, um, that Jesus is looking more and more like Officer Jesus to you, and you're living under fear and condemnation and judgment, um, and an indication of this is when your most fervent prayers are when you've messed up. Uh, if you, if you uh, sin in a way that is um, weighing on you, and you pray more fervently than you have in a really long time, that means that you primarily are relating to Jesus as a law enforcement officer. If you don't talk to him any other time of the day, and I'm not trying to lay a, you know, you need to now talk to him for 30 minutes a day about the weather. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying note how your prayer life goes, and it tends to reflect a lot about how you see Jesus. The one you have to beg, you know, please, just a warning this time, you know. If that's your relationship, it means that Jesus is basically a law enforcement officer. So if you're in that space... Go back to the Bible, because you're not going to find the law enforcement officer, Jesus, there. And I want to do that today. I want, I want to, I want to um, look at Matthew 8 with you, and I want to uh, see if we can send Officer Jesus away and see uh, real Jesus, capital R, capital J. So, Matthew 8. We're eight chapters into the Gospel of Matthew, but... Um, that may seem like we're a good bit in, but most of what Jesus has been doing up until that point is talking. Not much has happened plot-wise. Yes, he was born. Merry Christmas. And then he disappears for like a long time. Then uh, he grows up in the intervening years. And then he reappears out of the blue, gets baptized, uh, tempted. Then he preaches in a synagogue and then starts wandering around Galilee. Uh, like, you know, who died and made you God? Um, and he's uh, saying he's, he's now ma God's mouthpiece, uh, talking about the kingdom of God being at hand, and he starts healing tons of people. But he hasn't had a lot of ministry time yet. He's just at the beginning of his ministry. And he goes up on a mountain on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and um, starts talking. And he drops this bomb, which is what you and I have uh, come to know as the Sermon on the Mount. And David talked about the Sermon on the Mount last night. This is Jesus' greatest hits collection. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You thought that was just in Rush's 2112 album. But no, they were... Come on, people. Um, no prog rock fans in here? Anyways. Um, the meek shall inherit the earth. Um, he talks about, um, you know, that famous passage that Jimmy Carter mentioned in his interview with Playboy when he was running for president, and they asked him uh, kind of about his personal life. And, um, uh, you know, he, quote, he said, uh, I've never had an affair, but Jesus says, if you have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery, so I'm an adulterer. And Jimmy Carter was just talking about what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. That's where that passage comes from. Uh, he, it's where he says, don't worry about today. 
uh, don't worry about tomorrow, for today has enough trouble of its own. It's where he said, uh, judge not, lest ye be judged. It's where he talked about the speck of uh, sawdust in your brother's eye, but you've got to remove the plank in your own first. It's where he says, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. All that's, I mean, it's just the hits keep on coming. This is the Sermon on the Mount. It rocked the world of Jesus' listeners, and it rocks ours today. Without the Sermon on the Mount, you would have no Tolstoy, no Gandhi, no Martin Luther King, no Soren Kierkegaard, no Harriet Beecher Stowe. You wouldn't have Bono. Maybe that'd be a good thing. Um, no, I, lo- I love you too. Come on, I-, I say it because I love him. Um, you would have no Desmond Tutu, no Mother Teresa. It was the performance of a lifetime. I picture it. Jesus drops the mic. You know, Jesus out. And some might say, hey, Jesus, that was amazing. Stop there. You know, how will you top that? That's really good. You know, if you try to make a sophomore album, you know, what if you end up being like GNR, right? You know, you release Appetite. It blows the doors off of rock and roll history. And then, you know, Chinese democracy. Um, there, Dave, yes. Buy Dave Zoll's book. Um, you'll, and you'll know what I'm talking about. You know, what if, what if this is, you know, so, so just stop. You've done something amazing. Don't try to, you know, or, you know, maybe this is more your speed. Maybe it'll be like Harper Lee, who writes to kill a... Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and never writes another novel. Because if you write one that good, you know, don't risk another one. I know, there's, a, there's, there's some word about another one coming out, some controversy around it. We'll see. She is an Episcopalian. Just saying. (laughs) But Jesus is not going to stop with the Sermon on the Mount. He is going to go on and do more. And so I want to talk to you about what I call the Sermon on the Mount after party. Something he had to do because he ends the Sermon on the Mount with a doozy. He ends by saying, be perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay. Hmm. So we might run the risk of seeing the Sermon on the Mount as an undoable, never-ending to-do list with just one thing on it, be perfect. And if you've tried that, you know it's crushing. Dave talked last night about all the ways we try to be perfect. We get on that hamster wheel and we start running and we never, ever, ever reach the finish line. Perfectionism is merciless and relentless. So when Jesus comes down from the mountain, after giving this amazing sermon and ending with be perfect, we might expect him to pin on his Officer Jesus badge, fasten his holster, and get ready to make sure we all now do what he said. That we don't judge, that we don't lust, that we don't get angry, that we don't get hypocritical, that we are um, perfect. Have any of you felt like following Jesus is not a lot of fun? Have you ever um, felt like, wait a second, they said he would give me abundant life, but this is terrible. I am never good enough. 
Everybody at church is judging me. I'm not sure why, but I feel like Jesus is not happy with me. I can't put my finger on it, but I know I'm not good enough. You know, it was like you came to Jesus, received him into your heart, went, you know, for your seventh altar call, and you're sure this one is going to be the one that works. And then Officer Jesus shows up and looks you in the eye and says, Love you. Now don't mess up. And that's how a lot of people feel. So Jesus comes down from this hill on the shores of Galilee. And he has two interactions. This is the Sermon on the Mount after party. The first thing he does is heal a leper. The second thing he does after walking back to his home base of Capernaum is he heals the servant of a Roman centurion. This is the after party, and that's what I want to talk about. Because these might seem like no big deal, especially if you've grown up reading the Bible or uh, hearing it read in church, and you've heard all these stories about Jesus healing. Jesus' healings are like, oh, yeah, he healed another person, another healing, healed lots of people, no big deal. Uh, But these are a big deal. Healing is a sign of God's grace. God's grace is healing. And the way Jesus bestows it here shows us who real Jesus is as opposed to officer Jesus. So um, because he gives grace, the good stuff, to people that really should not receive it. If he was any self-respecting Messiah, he would not give grace to these people. He would not heal them, but he does. So let's look at these uh, two encounters. I'm going to read from the beginning of Matthew 8. When Jesus had come down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And there was a leper who came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. If Officer Jesus had been there, he would not have done this. Why? Because leprosy was not just a physical ailment. There was a huge religious component to it as well. There was an enormous spiritual dynamic. Um, His leprosy would have been a sign to everybody around that the Lord was not pleased with him. There was a tight connection in Jesus' day, like with many people today, between seeing someone's misfortune as a result of God's judgment. You did something bad because something bad is happening to you in your life. If you've got leprosy, you must have made some mistakes along the way. Uh, God wouldn't do this if you were a good, pure-in-heart person, right? And maybe even the leper believed this. You see this in the humility with which he approaches Jesus. He kneels before him. He falls to his knees. He calls him Lord, Kyrios, first time Jesus is called Lord in the the Gospel of Matthew. And he says, and he's he's got this, um, you know, very passive way of asking. He doesn't even really ask. If you're willing, if, if you're willing, you can make me clean. If it's not too much trouble, and and I know I'm not worthy, and you probably don't want to, right? This is how um, high school boys ask girls out on a date, (laughs) right? If if maybe you're free, uh, you know, you're waiting for the rejection, bracing yourself for it, and that's how this guy approaches Jesus. So he's not full of self-esteem. 
and swagger. The leper sees Jesus as a religious figure, preacher in the synagogue, healer, miracle worker, as someone who probably, like most religious people he's known, is uh, Barney Fife for the Lord. Officer Jesus. He would have been revolting to everybody else around, too. This would have been like the girl I knew in fourth grade, Gwen, who was that girl. Almost every elementary class has somebody that nobody wants to really be near. Often there's poverty involved and a broken family and not looking right and not talking right and there's someone who eats by themselves. This is, the, this is the leper. So he says, if you want, you can make me clean. Everybody's watching, and here's the thing. You know, you're a pin drop. What's Jesus going to do? Is he going to be officer Jesus? And says, well, you better pray harder and repent better and see if the Lord heals you. Choices have consequences. Sorry, man. Jesus, before he says anything, reaches out and touches him makes physical contact with the one nobody wants to get near and says, I do choose. I do choose. Be made clean. The real Jesus is the one who touches the guy that nobody wants to get near and makes him clean. The centurion. Let's move on to the next part of the story. When Jesus entered Capernaum, the centurion came to him, appealing to him and saying, Lord, second time Jesus is called Lord, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed in terrible distress. And he said to him, I will come and cure him. The centurion answered, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard him, he was amazed and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you according to your faith. And the servant was healed in that hour. You may have heard this passage addressed in a sermon before, and it's usually like, be like the centurion. Have awesome faith, because... uh, that's the key to everything. And if you don't, if your faith meter is not at 100%, you know like when you play a video game, your character has a health meter and it sort of drops as you get wounded or attacked or whatever. Um, I'm speaking to the overgrown adolescent males in this room. Um, but um, the, the, the 16-year-old inside never really dies. Uh, the health meter, there's sort of like this faith meter you have in church. You know, if you get above some sort of threshold, Jesus will answer your prayers. But if you've fallen below a certain threshold, he won't. So um, look how much faith the centurion had. So, so muster up your faith, people. Just mm, get more faith. Be more faithy. <laughs> However one is supposed to do that. You're missing the point, folks. The miracle happens 
um, in verse 7, and he said to him, I will come and cure him. Jesus says to the centurion, he says, approaches, my servant is homesick, can you come heal him? And Jesus says, I will come heal him. That is incredible. I mean, it gets more incredible as we go on. But the amazing thing is that Jesus is even willing to heal the servant. Let me explain it to you. (laughs) Officer Jesus, if that's who we were dealing with here, would not even interact with the centurion. Because he was a bad guy. Israel, like now, depending on how you look at it, uh, at least then, was occupied territory. People were fighting over the land. The Romans were in charge. This story, as I said, took place in Capernaum, this little fishing village in northern Israel on the shore of the sea. Um, It's right there on the water. You can visit there and see um, where this would have happened. You can visit the synagogue. You can see Peter's... Uh, house. But the Romans were in charge, and the the Jewish folks who were there uh, could not abide this. They couldn't stand it. They were not fans of the Romans. Roman centurion was called centurion because he was in charge of a century of men, a hundred soldiers. So he's like the chief uh, enforcer of Roman law in this area under people who hate them. the, the, these are like the stormtroopers, uh, you know, landing on Tatooine. Nobody likes them. Nobody wants them there. But not just are they, you know, evil empire people. Thank you. That took a while. Um, not only are they, the, they're like the stormtroopers plus with a religious bent to it as well. You know, they, their religion is wrong. They're Romans. I mean, they're, they're offensive for so many reasons and just their presence, their boots on the ground Um, is deeply offensive to the people there. Um, Any uh, good Jew around watching Jesus' interaction with the centurion would have known that the centurion was not pleasing to the Lord. (laughs) Worshipped all kinds of weird Greco-Roman soap opera gods. I I mean, have you ever read read Greco-Roman mythology? I mean, it's like a a telenovela. It's... uh, (laughs) Uh, so this is a very pagan and wicked guy and he's messing up your culture his very presence is, is you know you hear a lot of people today lamenting different um, power structures that are undermining the values that we hold dear whatever those might be They're me- you know, somebody's out there messing up my culture and that's how this uh, centurion would have been seen you're bringing your values, your Greco-Roman nasty pagan values, beliefs, and religions into my town, and you're, because you're the law, I can't do anything about it. Oh, I hate, you know, hate that. And how can Jesus, you know, had his bar mitzvah, good Jewish kid, grown up, we know this guy, um, he will want to have nothing to do with this centurion. And... Um, if he'd been, you know, a really good officer, Jesus, he would have not even um, entertained a conversation with him. And if he did at least allow the centurion to say, you know, I've got this servant who's sick, could you come, you know, do something about that? He would have said, no, you know, you are displeasing to the Lord. There's nothing, I got no soup for you. Um, but Jesus is, you know, he lets him talk, lets him ask. Um, 
And, you know, what's amazing here is not... Um, so it's, it's amazing that they have this conversation. Um, but the request is not to heal the centurion. The request is to heal the slave. Uh, this is the lowest of the low. You know, to heal or address and deal with... If, you know, if the centurion had been asking for himself, that would have been bad enough. But for the servant or slave of the centurion... I mean, this is like the scum of the scum. This is really bad. So, W-W-O-J-S. What would Officer Jesus say? You can get... There's complimentary wristbands on the way out. Officer Jesus would say, Well, um, sorry, Centurion. I don't know if you were here for the talk, but when I was up on the mountain, said some things, uh, including... Uh, but not limited to, be perfect, and you are not. Um, you don't worship Yahweh. You've probably never offered a sacrifice for atonement uh, uh, in Jerusalem at the temple. You're not circumcised. You are wrong on every level. You are anathema. You don't get anything. Um, you, you don't get anything, and definitely not your servant. But in verse 7, Jesus says, okay, let's go. Show me the way. Where do you live? Where's your servant? I will come and heal him. And then this next, and it gets even more amazing when he says, um, channeling uh, Wade and Garth, I'm not worthy. He says, and he really legitimately, he says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I, he says, um, you know, you're a boss like I'm a boss, and people do what, I, do what we tell them. So just say the word, and, uh, and he'll, be, he'll be healed. And Jesus is like, wow, you, you really believe. Jesus is amazed and says that basically everybody that's supposed to be in the party will not be in the party. But people who are not supposed to be in the Jesus party will come in based on their faith. And in saying that, insults everybody around him, all the good Jews who are the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And basically says this nasty Roman centurion is going to get into the party, into the VIP room. And from that moment, the servant is healed. <laughs> Anybody that tells you your faith meter has to be high enough, um, to quote Paul Zoll, throw a crucifix at him. Uh, that's the most recent podcast from PZ's podcast, which you can subscribe to on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Um, uh, ju I just this is an aside. It's not on my notes, people. The servant had zero faith. He didn't know. You know, he had no idea that his boss was going to intercede with this weird Jewish itinerant preacher. He's just lying there being sick, about to die. Right, it doesn't get, it, you don't go to ask Jesus for help unless it gets really bad, if you're a Roman centurion. It's sort of beneath you, right? So the servant, zero faith, and from that moment he was healed. Think about intercessory prayer, people. When you pray for someone and you don't feel worthy to ask, there's that thing, the uh, New Testament says, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, right? And so you, you pray like, man, I'm not righteous enough, so my prayer does squat. Well, the understanding of righteousness in Scripture, uh, at least in the light of Jesus Christ and what he does on the cross, is a little bit different than how you think of your Sunday school uh, righteousness, maybe. 
because this centurion has no righteousness in terms of how people in his time would have understood it. What have we said? Officer Jesus is the one that is often running our churches, our small groups, life groups, community groups, whatever term you use for those communities of Christians. He's often the one running our lives. And so there's two results. One is we hide behind the bushes. We follow our first parents, Adam and Eve. We saw that we were naked and we were ashamed, so we hid. We hide. We become hypocrites. Or we become deputized officers trying to help Jesus with crowd control and behavior management. We were good at lecturing and finger-wagging and the shaming stare. You know that look when a baby cries in church? The eyebrows shoot up and people... Or the cell phone rings? That ever happened to you? Whenever I'm preaching and, a cell, and someone's cell phone rings, I keep, a, I keep a little jar of BBs by me, just as I, I just... I don't do that. So I said, yeah, fear and hiding... Or, um, or Barney Fife's for the Lord. But I said, hold up, wait a minute. There's more here. Let's look at the scriptures. Let's look at Matthew 8. Let's find the real Jesus. And I said, let's look at what happened after the Sermon on the Mount. After Jesus said, be perfect, what did he do? He found the most imperfect people he could and healed them. These were people that were viewed as just covered in sin. The leper's condition was external. He was the revolting one. He was the disgusting one. He was the one whose sin made it so that no one wanted to touch him or be near him. For the centurion, just a man who is just irredeemable, so far from the Lord, not even um, close to being on the right team, never went to VBS, Never went to Camp Longhorn, never, uh, uh, not a day in Awana, doesn't know the word, doesn't tithe, doesn't drink, couldn't tell you 1 Corinthians from 2 Chronicles, probably drinks, probably eats too much, corrupt, not a man of integrity, probably does all kinds of, to quote Arlo Guthrie, mean, nasty things. And for both, he gives them grace. Touches the leper and heals the centurion servant and says, Nowhere in Israel have I seen faith like this. Now, this is the part in the sermon where I'm supposed to give you the application. And I'm supposed to tell you, well, in light of now what we see about the Lord and us, what are we supposed to do? Except there is no application here. Because you're already doing the only thing you need to do, which is to be a sinner, with no credit to his or her name. There's that great statement of Martin Luther, which I'm sure some of you have heard. Someone told me last night that nobody knows who Martin Luther is. 
if you think I'm talking about Martin Luther King Jr., this Martin Luther came before him, just FYI, and um, he was the father of the Reformation. And um, someone asked him, what do I contribute to my salvation? To which he replied, sin and resistance. These stories tell us that Jesus is not Officer Jesus, looking to give out tickets to people who are displeasing to the Lord. The real Jesus is looking for only one kind of person, the kind of people like this leper and like this centurion, who were different from one another, but they had two things in common. First was they were desperate. They were desperate for help. You know, the the centurion calls someone who is beneath him Lord. The leper falls on his knees. They both know that they're not worthy. The leper says, if you're willing. The centurion says, I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. They have no illusions that they can fix their problems. They realize they have no control over their situations. They see clear as day that they can do nothing. The second thing they both share is they see something about Jesus. Though they know they can do nothing, they know he can. They see that he can move immovable objects. To simply put it, they know only two things. Their weakness and God's strength. So what's the application? (laughs) What can you do? Well, are you a sinner? Are you imperfect? Are you a fraud? Do you feel like an imposter a lot of the time? Are you a perfect parent in church on Sunday? But at home, the little vein is standing out here on your neck? (laughs) as you scream at your children? Are you a leper? Do you hate yourself? There are a lot of people that loathe themselves. Brene Brown, a shame researcher in Houston, has written very movingly about some of the interviews she's done with men and women, and one of the things that comes out so much is body image. This may seem like a tangent for you, but this is one of the main ways where we experience the law in our society today. She used to just, when she would talk to men and women, she would say, for men, the issues of shame are around, you know, power or masculinity. For women, it's body image. And she's had to change her presentations because now everybody hates their bodies. Uh, But she has moving accounts of women avoiding mirrors and just loathing themselves. Are you revolted at parts of your life? What goes through your mind? If you wore on the outside what you know goes on on the inside, would you even want to touch yourself? Are you a leper? Are you a centurion? Do you betray your own values? Do you not have the right religious credentials? Have you not memorized a bunch of Bible verses? Do you not hang out with the right kinds of people? Do you do the wrong kinds of things? The 
the message is not clean up for Officer Jesus. The message is that Jesus is here and he's here for you, ready to extend his hand and touch that part of you that you never want anybody to see. It's still Lent, and if you need an, a visual for this, I'll give you a Lenten discipline. Go buy the DVD for season one of Quarters. Watch episode one. You see a disgusting man named Stephen who is living in his own filth, literally. And this Christ figure of a woman, an organizer, comes in and helps him clean up his stuff. And when you're watching this show, the guy sort of looks like comic book guy from The Simpsons, but a lot worse. And she just hugs him all the time through this thing. So watch that if you want to see what this looks like. Jesus is here, ready to touch that place that you don't want anybody to see or touch. The Sermon on the Mount is the perfect ethic. It's the highest and clearest distillation of God's perfect law. So many Christians just hear that, be perfect, and they don't read on. They're out there working really hard to try to follow through. But you got to read on from Matthew 7 to Matthew 8, and you got to get to the after party where you realize that the Sermon on the Mount is not primarily a description of how we should live. Of course it's that, and it would be great if we could. But the Sermon on the Mount is primarily a picture of the perfection of Jesus Christ. It's a description of him and how he lived and how he would die. And how he would take that perfect life and lay it down for you and for me. Deputies, take off your badge. Just put it on the desk. Frightened hypocrites, come out from behind the bushes. I see you there, lepers. The real Jesus is here. And he extends his hand, touches you, embraces you, and says, I do choose. Be made clean. Amen.